Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. You know, we've talked a lot about biotech in Japan on this show before. Quite a bit, really. We've gone into the fact that the Japanese biotech venture ecosystem is really being held back by the lack of investors willing to write the large checks required, knowing that they won't see any returns for over a decade. So, things are hard for life sciences in Japan. However, in the words of Dr. Malcolm, life uh, finds a way. Or in our case today, life sciences uh, find a way. There is a growing number of impressive life sciences startups emerging in Japan, and they are adapting and evolving so that they can innovate within the capital constraints they find themselves in. Today, we sit down with Yuki Shimahara, founder and CEO of LPixel. Now, LPixel applies artificial intelligence to medical imaging and detects a wide variety of conditions from CT scans and MRIs. Yuki is still a PhD candidate at the University of Tokyo, but he's running a company with more than 40 employees, so you can imagine he's a pretty busy guy. But he took some time to sit down with Disrupting Japan and talk about how AI is being used in medicine, the challenges facing life sciences in Japan. And between the two of us, we sketch out a new way forward for Japanese innovation, an innovation model that is distinctly different from that in the U.S., but that might just be the way forward in Japan. Oh, and as you know, my goal here at Disrupting Japan is always to bring you amazing insights from Japanese entrepreneurs in their natural habitat. This week, that habitat was a large concrete-walled conference room that makes us sound like we're talking in a vast underground cavern. It sounds a bit odd at first. But if you join us for the next 20 minutes in our underground lair, I guarantee you that you'll leave thinking very differently about life sciences in Japan. But you know, Yuki tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So I'm sitting here with Yuki Shimahara of LPixel, and thanks for sitting down with me today. Thank you. So LPixel is a cloud-based AI image analysis that you're using mostly for like life sciences and related research, but you, you can probably explain it much better than I can. So Mpixel is a startup from a research lab in the Tokyo University. So our major is bioimage informatics. So our core value is we combine life science and image analysis. So due to the evolution of like CTs and MRI, the microscopies and so on, uh, that we have many, many data these days. So we, we do bio-experiment and develop microscope and then analyze image data. 
Well, I, I think image data analysis in general is one of the most interesting areas of AI and machine learning right now. Mm-hmm. LPixel offers like a, a dozen different products and services. Right. So are these products meant to be kind of different pieces that can integrate together like AWS? Are they one-off independent products that different customers will sign up for? How exactly does the system work? Okay, so let me explain that one example, image analysis for medical image diagnosis. So we provide the technology, a name of uh, AID, E-I-R-L. So AID is image diagnostic support system for medical doctor. So for now, so only human medical doctor diagnosis CT and MRI images, and uh, the number of diagnoses is increasing. Our solution is very simple. We provide AI for them. We'd like to decrease misdiagnosis and medical expenses as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, actually, let's, let's dig into that right now because that's, that's interesting. So I know you've been working with the National Cancer Center of Japan right. mm-hmm. you know, to better detect cancer and other types of diseases. So, so what's involved in getting certification for a diagnostic tool mm-hmm. like this? Medical diagnosis is a very different type of business than right. most AI imaging. Uh, to be honest, AI is very you know, new technology for medical doctors. Uh, this kind of AI defined as medical devices. That means that we need to get approval as medical devices. Right. Yeah, so we, we need to do the clinical test, and then uh, we need to make a medical doctor decide uh, use or uh, doesn't use our system. This is what's interesting because, I mean, before you mentioned like AI is, is a new application for medicine, but actually medicine was one of the very first applications for AI going back into like the early 80s and the, the expert systems. Mm, and, right. So, I mean, it has a long history right. with medicine, but it doesn't seem that it's really made an impact yet. Mm-hmm. And so, like, at the, at the clinical trials, is there a specific number you have to hit? So, for example, does it have to be 98% accurate with 0.01% false positives? Or is there a specific number you need for certification? Or is it more complicated than that? Ah, that's a good question. So, yes, the answer is very complicated. So we cannot decide the exact number. So because it depends on diseases and <laughs> depends on the, uh, yes, what, what do we want to say. So getting approval is sometimes very difficult. Medicine is such an unusual field because in some ways it is so data-driven and in some ways it's very vague. Mm-hmm. And so when you're looking at a diagnostic device, not just a medical device, but a diagnostic device, which is even harder mm-hmm. to get certification right. for so if we're saying something like diagnosing a, a melanoma, mm-hmm. is there a baseline? Do we know that medical doctors are accurate 95% of the time? Is there a baseline or is that kind of unknown? It depends on diseases. 100% is impossible in medical field, right? In some diseases, 80% is the highest. It depends on the diseases. So we need to prove that this number is uh, reasonable. So we need to compare the human accuracy 
and the AI accuracy. Okay. Or need to com sometimes compare with only human doctor or human doctor with AI. So there's no specific number you have to reach. It's, it's up to well, you to say, is. this is our number and this is why that number is good enough. Mm -hmm. And you just have to convince the regulator. Exactly. All yes. right. So how do you see AI working with medicine? Do, do you see it as the AI would tell the doctor, hey, pay extra attention to this? Do you think the doctors would ask the AI to double check their work? How, how do you see doctors and AI working together? Uh, as a first step, I think the AI is just supporting diagnosis. So it is a kind of the um, checking system uh, for now. So sometimes two medical doctors diagnosis the one patient. But I think it can be the change, the medical doctor and AI. Do you see AI maybe in some day acting as sort of a, a pre-screening? Mm -hmm. So, when, for example, right now if someone gets an MRI or a, a CAT scan, the radiologist has to look at it and analyze it. He may not know specifically what he's looking for. Mm -hmm. But do you see a time where we might have, like, 300 different little AI programs, like this one is designed to detect pancreatic cancer, and, and this one is designed to detect this type of tumor. And mm -hmm. Right. Do you see like every CAT scan being run through all of these different algorithms, and then maybe after that, the doctors, you know, they can give their advice to the doctor and say, look for these things? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I, I believe that only one company cannot cover all diseases. Our company is a kind of app vendor, and I think it can be a platform. It is like an app store. Right. So we provide an app on the platform, and we can get the profit after paying the platform fee. What has been the reaction from the, the doctors themselves towards AI technology like this? Uh, the questionnaire from the around 2,000 medical doctors it says around 80% of medical doctor is interested in using AI. But the only one to two percent of medical doctor use AI for now. Why do you think that's, because that's a huge gap. Yes, huge. So why do you think that is? Why, if there's so much interest in it, mm -hmm. why aren't doctors using it more? Uh, one, one thing uh, we think we need to think about user interface and the user experience and a kind of workflow more. For example, medical doctor is very busy, so they don't want to use totally new application. I think that we need to integrate our AI to the, the, the software or workstation, so what medical doctor use. That makes sense. Yes. That makes sense. So that's why we have strong relationships with that vendor like Fujifilm, number one share in Japan, and uh, Canon, and so on. This kind of partnership is very important to make them use our AI. Well, actually, let, let's get back to the basic business model then, mm -hmm. um, and talking about these partnerships. So tell me about your customers. Who, who are your customers? Are they the, the doctors? Are they the medical imaging device manufacturers? Mm -hmm. Are they other research organizations? So regarding this kind of the medical image diagnostic technology, 
and the end user is a radiologist or pathologist. But we don't have the sales channel to them, so that's why they're collaborating with them, so we can use the medical vendors sales force. Do you see the future of LPixel then as making software that is integrated with a specific um, like Rico's imaging platform and maybe like white labeling it? Do you see the future more as tight integration with different medical imaging platforms rather than a, a pure SaaS model? Yes, so all startup companies need to focus on the, their strengths, right? So our strength is technology developing AI to this industry, not sales channel. I think that's one of the first steps. So using this kind of partnerships, we'd like to maximize the number of uh, users. Actually, let's, let's back up a little bit and talk about you. Mm-hmm. You started LPixel and, and ran it while you were getting your PhD at the University of Tokyo. And you were studying life sciences, not computer science, right? Um, my background is life science. Yeah. Yes. So, so what attracted you to AI you know, and, and this particular application? So actually, I wanted to be a car engineer. Car engineer. Really? <laughs> yeah, when I was a high school student. So my mind is an engineering mind. And, but when I was a high school student, I knew the news. IPS cell. IPS cell is a, a kind of stem cell. So when I heard the news, so I thought, so this century is a century of the, the bioengineering. So I think that uh, car engineering is the 20th century industry. So I want, I need to, I want to challenge a new industry. Yeah. So uh, the, when I was a, a bachelor degree, I studied synthetic biology. So it is a kind of genetics. So I wanted to make my creature or like that. So yes, but I noticed bioengineering is very difficult for now. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes so, it is. So I, but the, I'm very interested in and strongly believe that combining the life science and IT is the biggest innovation in this century. So most of life science researchers don't like mathematics. <laughs> really? I thought, they'd be, I thought they'd be pretty good. I thought there'd be a lot of mathematics required for life sciences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's, yeah so when I choose the research lab when I was at graduate school, I've noticed the image analysis is a good solution to the next three years or five years. You know, there are so many really interesting startups coming out of the University of Tokyo recently. Mm-hmm. In the last five or six years, the number has really just exploded. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about the kind of Todai spin-out process. Mm-hmm. What, what kind of support do you get from the university? Uh-huh. What's, what's good? What's hard? And why are there so many Todai founders all of a sudden? Uh, okay. Yes, that's true. That uh, number of startups from Tokyo University is increasing, but number is that not so big for now. So I heard uh, it is over two hundred, uh, but the rest are three hundred. So I think it is a very small number 
comparing the, the, the U.S. Or, uh, well, that's true. But I, I think the U.S. is kind of the exception yes. globally. Yes. I mean, I think if you compare it to uh, London or Singapore or Berlin, uh, it's, you know, a lot. Yes, exactly, yes. The one thing is that from 10 years ago, uh, Tokyo University wanted to change supporting uh, startups, brought the joint research with research lab and university and the corporate institutes. And then, so one example is Tokyo University uh, have the class for studying the startups or innovation. I, I heard it is eighth or ninth year student have an opportunity to learn what is a startup and what is innovation and what, is, what was the success company. Did you take that class? Actually, no. <laughs> but I, but um, yes, so, that, so when I think about establishing a company, I ask that Tokyo University corporate division, and then we use the incubation, the program in Tokyo University. Yeah, so I think the, the Tokyo University provide the opportunity okay. to study and support establishing company. So do they also provide things like uh, mentoring and advice? Uh, yes, good question, yes. So our first incubation program is uh, six months. So two mentors are assigned. And one mentor is, um, is a role model of the startups of Tokyo University. He was established a, a company that spinning out from Tokyo University. His company uh, was IPO. In the, maybe 10 years. So his advice is very helpful for us. And then for now, he is our, our director. Actually, I, I remember reading that the, the first AI software you developed was actually used to detect fraud in research papers. Ah, research image fraud, yes. Yeah. Actually, the, our first year, our main business is uh, joint research. But we wanted to challenge the pro- uh, developing the, our self-development software. Four years ago, uh, so research fraud was becoming a very big problem in Japan. All life science researchers knew so many research fraud in there, and uh, some research paper cannot trust, and, uh, but nobody cannot do. Right. So who can solve this problem? We thought, uh, uh, we. <laughs> so we, uh, we combine life science and image analysis and IT. Only this kind of people, uh, including us, can solve this problem. So that's why we challenge. So, so your, your technique was looking for image manipulation right. yes. in the articles. Mm-hmm. Right. That software is still in use, right? You... Yes. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. Yeah, so we'd like to uh, make it uh, a global standard in this field. Yeah, I I think research fraud is a much bigger problem than most people acknowledge worldwide. It's something like the amount of research published has increased by like 40% over the last 5 or 10 years. Mm -hmm. And there's just not that much more research being done. Right. (laughs) Kind of suspicious. Yes, suspicious. Actually, let's go back to talking about AI and doctors. Mm -hmm. So 
One of the things that I imagine doctors would be very skeptical about is trusting AI. Mm -hmm. Are you focusing more on explainable AI techniques or are you focusing on just whatever gets the best results? Uh, it is very difficult to answer so because they're both very important for us. Each medical doctor has uh, the different expectation. Uh, most medical doctor cannot understand what AI can do or what AI cannot do. We need to explain what AI can do and what our AI can do. And then, so make them use, a trial use first, and they need to get feedback, improve accuracy. But, but doctors in general are very stubborn creatures. <laughs> <laughs> do you think they'd be willing to accept an AI that just says, I think this is a tumor and I can't explain why? I think the num number of accuracy is very important. I think that uh, no one the, knows the, what the, this, this medicine effect to the human, right? So human is very complicated and yeah. uh, everyone does uh, not know the, what human is. <laughs> and then, but the medicine is uh, helpful for some diseases. Then, so medical doctor use it. Okay, so you think the doctors will just rely on the proof from the clinical trials mm -hmm. and, and the evidence, and they'll say, okay, well, even if I don't understand why this works, and even if the company doesn't understand why it works, the data shows that it works, and that's right. Yeah, that's reasonable. That makes sense, yeah. And I, I guess they do work that way in a lot of medical tests mm -hmm. and pharmaceuticals. So, mm -hmm. yeah, sure, mm -hmm. why not? <laughs> you know, there, there are so many companies in this space, mm -hmm. in AI for medical imaging. Exactly. What do you think is LPixel's strongest competitive advantage? Two things for now. So one is uh, Japan has the largest number of CTs and MRIs per population. Yeah, it's really oh, high. Yes. So I think that not, not only the number, but also the quality is very high in Japan, and then you, we can use that kind of uh, image. So that means we can provide a high quality AI to the market. Yes, I think it is uh, one uh, opportunity for us. Second thing is uh, some area, Japanese key opinion leader is a global key opinion leader. Let's say the microscopy, the company of Olympus, have the top share in the microscopy uh, around 70%. Oh, that makes sense. So if you can get key partnerships with, right. with Mitsubishi and, right. and Canon and, and Olympus. Tachi and like that, yes. And that's what, because I noticed your, your site was in English as well, which is great. So is your, your plan to go global to sell to the Japanese device manufacturers and then just go global with them. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, of course, uh, we are not particular about only Japanese market. In this industry, Japan and the U.S. are the biggest market. So our next challenge is challenging the U.S. market. Okay. So recently, LPixel raised about $8 million from Jafco and Mistletoe and a few other investors. Right. 
So, so far, have you been purely venture funded or have you also gotten government grants and subsidies? We received the both. So for now, we have three national projects and also we get the national funding and do my, our research. We did the Series A funding one and a half years ago. Yeah, so we used that kind of money. Two years ago, we used the debt finance as well. Really? Yes. So convertible debt or just a straight loan? Mm-hmm. Or was it a ah, no, straight no, no, no. loan? No, 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 compatible. Just straight That's loan? Right. Yes. Okay. So it is a big difference from the U.S. I think the it is. U.S., uh, the startup, it is very difficult to get the debt finance. But uh, Japan, uh, not easy, but not so difficult. Okay. Mm-hmm. And was Todai helpful in the fundraising, or was that something you kind of had to go out and do on your own? Actually, Todai uh, didn't help us uh, regarding uh, finance, uh, but uh, they gave us uh, advice. And introductions? or Right. Okay. Well, that's helpful. Mm. Right. Excellent. Well, listen, Yuki, before we wrap up, mm-hmm. I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. And that is, if I gave you a magic wand mm-hmm. and I told you you could change one thing about Japan... Mm-hmm. Anything at all. The education system, the way people think about risk, the legal system, anything at all to make things better for startups in Japan. Mm-hmm. What would you change? Yes, it is, is very, what? very clear. So we want to make a top 1% smart uh, researchers, make them the CEO of startups. <laughs> Okay. So, so do you feel like really good researchers in Japan just want to spend their life doing research? Yes, exactly. So I'm, sometimes I'm very, uh, very sad because around me, so many are smart and genius researchers. But uh, most of all, uh, can choose the two ways. One is academic uh, career path, and the second way is working for a big company. So only two options. But we, I think, I strongly believe that startups from research lab can be the big career path and should be career path for them. I think so too, but I think this is a global problem. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to have more role model, the, the, the startups from the research lab. You're a PhD candidate in Todai, so you're surrounded by research scientists mm-hmm. and right. some of the smartest in Japan. Do you think that's changing? Do you think, not just the students, but do you think the, the professors are being more entrepreneurial? Are they thinking about startups? Are they thinking about joining startups? Or are they pretty happy in academia? I think not all, but I think so, that this kind of trend is, is becoming a big trend these days. Yeah, so I think the, yeah, it is reasonable for them. Are you seeing professors actually leave academia yes, to yes. start companies? Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. Some professor do that. All right. Well, that's good. I mean, I knew it was more and more students. Mm-hmm. But if the professors are doing it as well, that's a fantastic sign. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a trend I certainly hope we see continue. Ah, yes. <laughs> well, listen, Yuki, thank you so uh, much for sitting very- down with me. Yes, thank you very much. And we're back. Let's take a closer look at LPixel's sales model. Not only because it's a good strategy that suits them, 
but because it might represent a new way forward for Japanese innovation, one that is actually kind of a step backwards, but, but in a good way. Let me explain. Yuki explains that he is perfectly happy not to develop a large sales force, but to rely on partnerships with large medical device manufacturers. These firms, the university, and the government subsidize his research. It's a long-term, highly collaborative process that can move the whole industry forward. And these kind of partnerships are becoming more and more common in Japan. A lot of Japanese enterprises have realized that they've lost their ability to innovate, and they're looking to plug that hole. Startup collaboration, both with individual startups and with university programs, seems to be one way of filling that hole. And this is very different from the kind of university research or M&A that we see in the U.S. and Europe. These are startups and enterprises that are building long-term collaborative relationships. We might be seeing the beginnings of what will become Enterprise Japan's innovation supply chain. And in some ways, it mirrors the manufacturing supply chains of the Keiretsu days. The startups can focus on innovation and making their product better, and never really having to worry about things like mass marketing, customer support, or aggressive sales targets. The most important difference, of course, is that today's startups will be part of several different innovation supply chains, rather than being locked into one, as they were back in the Keiretsu days. In some ways, it's quite similar to the integrator model of innovation we talked about a few months ago. It's easy to see why enterprises like this situation, as the innovation remains under their control, but a surprisingly large number of Japanese founders are excited about the system as well. It's certainly a lower-risk, lower-return way of running a startup, but it requires a level of faith and trust in your business partners that you, you really don't find often in the West. Very few Western founders would ever give up their sales and marketing function to someone else, but it seems to be working here. And if both sides, if both startups and enterprises are acting in good faith, there could be a massive amount of value and innovation created this way. But not disruptive innovation. That's the only area where this system falls down. It's only good at solving problems that the large enterprises want solved. But in some cases, like medical devices and diagnostic equipment, incremental innovation is the way to go, at least when looking at innovations that can be brought to market. So hey, I've always said that trying to copy Silicon Valley is a fool's errand. And here we might be seeing the emergence of a uniquely Japanese model for innovation. 
if you want to talk more about innovation and medical imaging or in general, Yuki and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 128 and let's talk about it. Also, please follow Disrupting Japan on Twitter and Facebook or even join our LinkedIn group. If you want to ask a question there, I guarantee you I'll respond. Oh, and by the way, the big Disrupting Japan 4th anniversary party and live podcast will be happening next week on September 13th at Super Deluxe in Roppongi. We'll have Paul Chapman, CEO of MoneyTree, Jay Winder, CEO of Make Leaps, and Casey Wall, CEO of Wall & Case, talking about how to start and grow a business as a foreigner in Japan. These three successful foreign entrepreneurs took three very different paths to growing their company here. So I guarantee you it's going to be a great discussion. And of course, a great deal of wine, beer, and conversation will flow after the show. You really want to be there. So check out DisruptingJapan.com or our LinkedIn or Facebook groups for more details. I hope to see you there. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan. <laughs>